Fantastic. Everybody doing okay? Doing good? All right. We are rolling this morning. We're not fooling around. We're, keep, we're getting to it, okay? So this morning, we are continuing our current study series entitled Jesus Is, and if we could write it in a way that looked, didn't look goofy, it'd be Jesus Is blank is what we're doing. So we're endeavoring to complete that sentence, uh, and so last week, we started out with, I guess, kind of a maybe a little bit of an audacious sermon title, Jesus According to Jesus. Um, and that's where we started uh, last week. And so this morning, we're just really kind of continuing on uh, this pursuit of ours. Um, and I love this title, and I hope to have a chance to circle back to it um, when we conclude or at the conclusion of our study. Jesus is unyielding hope. Um, and there's so much that I want to say about that, but um, I feel like um, I need to say everything else that we have to say first. Um, but I love that title, and I just want to say, just for now, that's not fluffy, sentimental, Hallmark card hope. That is uh, gritty, audacious, earthy, transformational hope. Jesus is unyielding hope. I remember growing up uh, that one of the catchphrases that was around, and this would be, you know, when I was, when I was really young um, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was one of the catchphrases going around at the time, Jesus is the answer. Anybody heard that before? You've seen the bumper sticker, and Andre Crouch had a great song, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Anybody remember that song? Uh, so that was kind of a thing. Um, and I guess the sense of it was, is, you know, whatever the question is, Jesus is the answer. Um, and I suppose, you know, depending on the question, now, you know, I can certainly agree with that. But what we're really doing in this study series is turning that around um, and really acknowledging that in many ways, it's fair to say Jesus is the question. Uh, certainly for me in my own life, I can say, indeed, that Jesus has been discovered to be the answer for, you know, for sure, a great many questions. Um, but if I'm speaking autobiographically, I have to also acknowledge that at the same time for me, uh, and this has been true throughout, but certainly in more recent years, um, I have found perhaps more so that Jesus is the question. Jesus raises many many questions the questions come and they keep on coming who is jesus what does it mean what does it mean to follow him i mean like authentically follow jesus what is it i mean i guess to say it in a different way this is probably the apostle paul's way of saying the same thing i would i would uh, uh suggest what does it mean to have the image of christ reconstructed brought about within me. That would be more Pauline kind of language. Um, what did Jesus really mean when he said the things that he said? I mean, on and on and on these questions um, go, and, and you know that I'm not the only person to ask these questions. You're not the only one to ask these questions. These questions have been asked by, you know, tons and tons of people for 2,000 years for, uh, uh, since uh, both those who are admirers of Jesus and those who are skeptical or even critical 
of Jesus. Um, these are not just run-of-the-mill, ho-hum um, questions without significance. Um, Jesus has, in fact, presented humanity with enormous questions, deeply significant questions, history-making questions, even destiny-shaping questions. Like, like, was he and therefore is he really the world's savior? I mean, that's an enormous claim that's been made by the church for 2,000 years. And if so, what does that really mean? What does it mean to, to say, to claim, that Jesus really is the world's savior? What does that mean? What, what did he say exactly? What did he teach about life, about God, about the future, about himself? What about his miracles? What does that mean? You know, I mean, on and on these questions go. And then, of course, maybe um, uh, chief among those questions, what about this claim of resurrection? Did he rise from the dead? And if so, what does that mean? You could say that the way that various people have gone about answering these questions has actually shaped world history in the last 2,000 years. These are questions that have certainly shaped and reshaped the destinies of millions of people. And so collectively, you could extrapolate and say, well, these questions and the way that people have answered these questions have shaped history. And the point of all that is all of these questions and their enormous spillover magnitude really stem from the one central most starting point question, which is, who is he? Who was Jesus, historically speaking? Who was Jesus of Nazareth? And who is Jesus? And again, just to kind of add to the mustard here, um, we need to bear in mind that at least for, for Christians, for the church, the movement that, uh, that was sparked by Jesus, our central claim um, is that Jesus is the full self-revelation of God. So when we ask the question, who is Jesus, even when we ask the question, who was Jesus from a historical standpoint, we're asking an enormous question because really as Christians, our conviction, the belief that formed very early around Jesus' closest followers is that this is, in fact, the full self-revelation of God in a human being. So when we ask these questions about who is Jesus, we're really asking, who is God? What is God like? And so we have these questions. Millions of people who have come before us have had these questions. In fact, this morning where we're going to start as our jumping off point um, is maybe a little bit of an inversion of that question. We're asking the question more like um, it was phrased uh, by Tim Rice and was it Andrew Lloyd Webber who wrote the lyrics to Jesus Christ Superstar? Anybody Google that right quick? Anyway, uh, check me on that. I know Tim Rice was one of them. Um, that was when Tim, well, let me just say, some people say Tim Rice wrote the lyrics to Jesus Christ Superstar before he descended into uh, popular kitsch, that is, with the Disney contracts when he wrote the lyrics for Little Mermaid and, and all those others. Um, I happen to love that Disney material, so I'm not sure I would characterize it as a descent. Maybe he ascended. Uh, but anyway, Tim Rice, they asked the question in Jesus Christ Superstar um, the way we're asking it. Who are you, Jesus? Who, who are you? Who is this? 
who is this person? That's really the question we're asking. But what we have in the New Testament, in our case from the Gospel of Matthew, um, is the opposite of that question, where Jesus is asking the question. And we at least get um, uh, one answer to the question, and it's an answer that Jesus ultimately affirms. And so we're going to take this as our um, launch point for today. Matthew 16 says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. That's pretty much kind of a who's who, the top tier of um, revered Israelite prophets listed there. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, ultimately, Jesus affirms uh, this answer. But I want to just take this answer again as our launch point. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And if you'll recall from last week where we began, um, I kind of sketched out a, a short list of portrayals or conceptions of Jesus that are held commonly in culture, or at least in, you know, kind of our little ghetto of religious culture uh, within the globe. And in our culture, you know, I think I listed, there's kind of Jesus, the crucified Savior, which really becomes kind of a religious symbol. Um, then there's Hallmark Jesus, who is kind of disconnected from, from life and kind of floating on a cloud. There's placeholder Jesus, where you strip Jesus of his Jewish roots and you strip Jesus of his actual historical context and, um, and of his right now, here and now significance. Forget all about um, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and you get this empty void uh, that I described as placeholder Jesus, which you can then fill in with any kind of meaning you want, which is, which is where you get um, phenomenon like the Jesus of the KKK, the Jesus of the Nazis, um, and so on. Um, and so I wanted to bring that back into this conversation and then take these words where Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I want to say... I want to propose that this answer from Peter actually can probably once again be made to fit within any of those familiar conceptions of Jesus held by popular religious culture. This answer can be made to fit within the characterization or conception of Jesus as the, the crucified Savior. It can be made to fit within the placeholder Jesus. It can be made to fit within nearly any of those conceptions. The only thing that you need to do in order to use this answer from Peter to support one of those portrayals of Jesus is to actually, as I said before, actually ignore or forget the historical meaning of these words as used by Peter, Messiah, son of the living God. And so what I want to do this morning is try as best we can to back up, maybe even if we could, time machine travel and as best we can, try to put our feet in Peter's sandals as best we can 
and see what happens in terms of our understanding of these words from Peter once we actually do take in the historical context. Because in reality, in their historical context, when taken seriously in that sense, Peter could hardly have said anything more explosive. These phrases, these titles, Messiah, Son of the living God, are loaded with meaning. And there's really two, I don't know if you want to call them rivers that converge together on the historical Jesus, or if you want to talk about, um, maybe if you think about a storm where there might be two storms that come together and form one giant superstorm <laughs> around Jesus, I think that's uh, fitting. Either one of those are, are fitting metaphors. Um, and I want to start with the first, and that is the story of Israel. You see, for centuries, the Jewish people had longed for God to be their king once again, sort of. That God would return to Israel and he would sort everything out, everything that had gotten terribly broken and upside down and painful and even shameful for them. And this hope actually begins as far back as you can go with creation itself. This, this, this ancient, by the time of Jesus' day, it was already an ancient Jewish hope, um, an expectation, actually, that goes all the way back to creation. And you know the story. God had created everything perfect and peaceful and beautiful. Um, but, of course, something went terribly wrong, and all of creation itself was broken. And almost immediately, as the story unfolds, almost immediately God promises to fix everything. And this is so important to remember, even to start answering the question of who is Jesus. God promises to fix everything and restore his original creation into its intended state. And when I say creation here, I'm talking people, animals, the earth, everything. That's the beginning. That's where the, what we call the, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, that's where they began. And with that beginning, the wheels of history begin to turn and to unfold in God's great project to restore all of creation. So the first big piece, if you want to say, where, where's the starting point to understand the context, the story of Jesus? The first big piece is creation. And the second big piece is covenant. And this is, again, just, just taken from the, the ancient Hebrew scriptures themselves. No, you get to... Uh, no later than chapter 12, as we've got it divided out. God appears in the life of a man named Abraham, and he tells this unsuspecting fellow <laughs> that this great divine restoration plan um, is going to be fulfilled through him, through Abraham and through his descendants. And God says to him significantly, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the tribes of all the earth. It's a remarkable Claim. This is God's great restoration project running right through Abraham and his descendants to the world and for the world. This is what we discover in the first 12 chapters of the ancient Hebrew scriptures. And by the way, the scriptures that we Christians have carried forward as our sacred text as well. So we have in the first 12 chapters, we have these two giant themes, creation and covenant. And these are the two themes that create 
the larger, broader storyline or the context for everything else that unfolds in both in sacred scripture and in history. Creation. God is the creator of all of creation, and it was good through and through and in every way. And then creation as a whole was broken, thrown out of joint through human choice and action. We have broken God's good world. That's kind of creation. And then the second big piece, covenant. God is at work within history to restore his good creation. And God has chosen to work through a particular people for the sake of all people. Through a particular people for the sake of all people, for the sake of all creation. So creation and covenant, that's the big picture. And we have to hold on to that. If we're going to understand who Jesus is, we have to hold on to that. Lots and lots of nonsense happens when we forget that this is the starting point for understanding the meaning of Jesus. And so... Time obviously continues to progress, and Abraham does indeed have descendants, and they become the people that we know of as the people of Israel. But eventually, far from becoming this bright light through whom God is restoring the world, the people of Israel are instead, well, first, I guess we'll say first, they find themselves as a slave race in Egypt ruled by Pharaoh. They are now powerless, joyless, chained, and hundreds of years past like this. Um, perhaps, I would say, not more than perhaps, but let's just say perhaps on the verge of losing their sense of that ancient Abrahamic identity, right? 400 years goes by. It's hard to remember who you are, you know. And then into this darkness steps a man named Moses, and he leads this rescue operation out of the grip of slavery under Pharaoh through the Red Sea and eventually into their own homeland. Fast forwarding a little bit now. Uh, and so with this, with these Moses events carried on forward through uh, Joshua, I guess, if you take that whole span of time and squish it together, they suddenly become a people of their own with their own nation, their own land. And so, you know, it's like, surely, surely this is it. Surely this is the time when God will make good on his promise that Israel will be the greatest, most powerful nation on earth, or however it is that anyone might have imagined what the meaning of that ancient promise to Abraham might actually be. But surely this is going to be the time when God is going to put right, you know, the world and everything in it. Well, years pass by, and not only does that not happen, but things yet again actually deteriorate. People go their own way, serve themselves, worship almost anything other than God. They have what might be characterized as their peak period under King David, but even with him, um, we see the cracks and the brokenness shared among all creation. Certainly in the generation that follow King David, things continue to break down and descend into a future of fracture and chaos. And eventually, the people of Israel are overtaken yet again by a foreign power and taken into slavery yet again. Out of their promised land, the powers of Babylon come crashing in under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. But even during this dark time, as the people are taken into captivity into Babylon, even during this dark time, God, through his prophets, continues to assure this people that he has a plan for them and for the world. And his plan remains intact. His plan is what it has always been 
and it remains intact, that he will see it through. He promises over and over, they will be restored. He will, God himself will yet again rule directly as their king, and he'll sort everything out. He will restore the world and everything in it to his original intended design. And in fact, through these very same prophets, he promises that he'll do this by sending someone. And this person will bring about the for real kingship of God. God will yet again be the king of his people. Indeed, he will be the king of the world through this one that he will send. And this king that the prophets say over and over again that God will send, he's referred to by various titles by the ancient prophets. He's called, for example, the son of God. He's called, for example, the son of man. And he is referred to as the Messiah, the rescuer, the deliverer, will come. And when Messiah comes, he will deliver Israel into the nation, the people that God has always intended for them to be. And so with this observation, I talked about maybe a, a superstorm with two storms coming together or a super river with two rivers coming together. This becomes one of those rivers that comes into the confluence um, around Jesus. And you could put it this way. This storyline so far, this constitutes Israel's enduring hope. They are a people who are at the time of Jesus, and we'll get there in just a minute, but they are a people who are not their own people. They are ruled over by foreign pagan overlords. Uh, they are taxed to the hilt. They are being sapped dry of all the resources they can possibly produce uh, by a foreign power. And yet they are people who have this stubborn, unyielding hope. Their prophets have promised them over and over and over again. This is the first part of Peter's answer. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the one that our prophets have been talking about for years and years and years and years. It is all of this ancient but enduring Jewish hope that Peter is speaking of. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the catalyst, the divinely sent catalyst for the unfolding of the ancient story that begins clear back with creation and covenant. You see what I'm saying? Is everybody see what I'm saying? So the point is, this story that Peter is speaking of, we're not free to create a totally different story. You're the one, you, who are you? Well, I'll tell you who you are. You're the one that if we can get all those heathens to walk the aisle and pray a sinner's prayer and have their sins forgiven, they can go to heaven when they die. When they die. We're not free to turn this story into that story. This is the story. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Messiah. You are the one from creation and covenant through all that misery and pain and through the, uh, uh, the over and over and over again assurance of, of our own prophets assuring us that God would send a deliverer who would, who would restore, uh, uh, free, of us, free us of our shame, free us of this oppression, whatever it is, and bring about our deliverance, convert us into a free people. 
This is the story that Peter is invoking when he says the word Messiah. So continuing on through history, and this helps us get to our second theme if we're talking about a confluence of two rivers. Um, eventually, no, no, we're backing up to the, to the ancient story of Israel. They're in captivity under King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Eventually, Babylon itself uh, is overcome by the growing Persian Empire, and Persia sort of then inherits Israel as a part of the deal. Um, over time, almost as if having no real dog in the old fight by Nebuchadnezzar, the Persians actually do allow the Israelites to return to their own land and even rebuild their own temple. But still, they are not free. Um, they are not the people of promise. They're there in their land. They have the temple, even have restored some of their worship and protocols, but they're not the people of promise. They're not the light of the world. There is actually, in truth, very little evidence that the promise of God to restore the world through them is actually unfolding. While it's true that God is always, of course, in a sense, king over his world, from their perspective, from the creation and covenant and the restoration of creation, from that perspective, in fact, during this period of time, there's, in, in reality, very little evidence that God is reigning as their king right then and right there in real time. So time passes in this awkward state. I mean, we're present, but we're not and all that. Um, and the Persian Empire is actually then conquered by the armies of Julius Caesar and the land and the people, including Israel, now become the property, the possession, the subjects of the Roman Empire. Now we're at 63 BC. You may remember from world history class, any world history people on live stream, um, the Roman general Pom Pompey, Pompey, however you want to pronounce it, um, conquers Jerusalem, 63 BC. So still, no glimmer of the promise of God being fulfilled. True, they're in their own land. They have their own rebuilt temple to worship in. It's all under the eye, uh, watchful eye now of the Roman soldiers overhead in their watchtowers. The people of Israel are not free. They're not their own people, let alone the people through whom God is restoring the world. And on top of all that, as if to rub salt in the wound, um, you probably once again remember from world history class that Julius Caesar actually allowed the people to worship him as a god. Um, Julius Caesar eventually came to think of himself as a god. He actually decided that he was a god. And, of course, the traditionalists in Rome, some folks, didn't appreciate that very much. And so they assassinated Julius Caesar, and this brought about a long civil war. And eventually there was one winner. The winner of that civil war was Octavian, Caesar's adopted son. His victory at Actium. Now we're at 31 B.C. And Actium becomes the, the new ruler of the now unified Roman Empire. And he takes for himself the title Augustus, which means worthy of honor or majestic or some kind of idea like that. And Octavian then also declared that his father, let's say, quote unquote, Julius, was in fact divine. 
And if my father was divine, then guess what that makes me? The son of God. So Octavian Augustus Caesar took for himself the title son of God throughout the Roman Empire. He was the son of the divine Julius Caesar. If you had asked anybody at that time anywhere in the Roman Empire, from Germany to Egypt, from Spain to Syria, who is the son of God? Well, a person would answer you, say, where have you been? You under a rock? The son of God, obviously, that's Octavian, that's Caesar. The son of God is Augustus Octavian Caesar. That's the son of God. Everybody knows this, they would say. And, of course, this being a world where religion was fully integrated with the state, um, Augustus became, among other things, the chief priest. Uh, so he's the son of God, and he is the chief priest. In fact, the historians of Rome rewrote the entire history of the empire uh, to climax with the reign of Augustus Octavian as the one who brought about a new age of peace and prosperity, a new world order. And the message was, in fact, carved into monuments throughout the Roman Empire during the time of Augustus Caesar. And here's the inscription. Good news, or what sometimes is said, gospel, euangelion. We have an emperor. Justice, peace, security, and prosperity are ours forever. The Son of God has become king of the world. This is the inscription known throughout the Roman Empire during this time. We're around the 30s to 20 BCE. Augustus ruled until 14 AD. And after his death, he too was divinized, made a god. And Tiberius took on all the same titles and roles as Augustus. Tiberius, maybe you could even say, took it a step further. He had coins produced that were inscribed with them on one side, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. What does that mean? Son of God. The other side has Tiberius dressed as a priest, and it's inscribed simply with chief priest. So again, Tiberius takes on all the same identity as Octavian, son of God and chief priest. Augustus Tiberius Caesar ruled the known world, and he had delegated authority to various governors throughout the Roman Empire to collect taxes and above all keep the peace. And this included Palestine, a region in which Jesus was born, lived, and ministered. And in the area of Palestine, this delegated authority of Caesar went to the Herods. It was their job to remind people of the good news that they had an emperor, the son of God, Augustus Tiberius Caesar, who rules the world as the king of the world, who has brought security, who has brought the peace of God to the realm. Okay, now, all of this provides the second big atmospheric element for understanding this answer from Peter. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now that phrase, obviously it has religious resonance within the story of Israel, the ancient language of the ancient prophets, but you better know that title also has a resonance in, within the totalizing theology of Rome. 
See, Rome, Rome was not looking someday for a better future. Rome was already living the ultimate hope. Rome was not looking for a divine deliverer. Rome was celebrating the presence of their divine deliverer. So when Peter says, you are the Messiah, he's clearly speaking from this Jewish story. And when Peter says the Son of God, he's speaking in a way that bumps up against the totalizing everythingism of the theology of Rome. And these two streams form the world in which Jesus was born, the world in which he conducted his public ministry. And these two streams come together right here in this moment between Jesus and the disciples. And when Peter gives this answer, you're the Messiah the son of the living God. This is explosive language. This is not the language of detached religious symbol. This is not the language of, of detached someday-ism religion. This is the language of right now. Peter is saying, essentially, when Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are the Messiah, G Peter is saying, it's on. What the prophets promised and predicted, what Israel has hoped for, the deliverance, the restoration of all things, it's on. Game on. You are the person that the prophets promised that God would send. You are the Messiah. And when Jesus says, when Peter says, you are the son of God, he is saying Caesar is not. You are the son of God. This is explosive language. It is, from the standpoint of the story of Israel, for Peter to say, you are the Messiah, this is, this is um, uh, the eruption of hope that Peter is speaking from in terms of creation and covenant. This is the restoration. You are the embodiment of God's restoration of the world and everything in it. That's at least, Peter is saying that, probably something greater. Um, but when Peter says to Jesus, you are the son of God, we should realize at a minimum that this is treasonous talk. It represents a challenge to Caesar himself. And of course, this is also consistent. And again, we, again, we, unfortunately, we miss, we miss this as well. But there's the same resonance when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. This is his favorite theme. He talks about it over and over again. Constantly, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is near you. The kingdom is within you. The kingdom is like this pearl of greatest price. The kingdom is like someone who went out and sowed and seized. I mean, on and on and on. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, but sometimes we fail to forget here 2,000 years later removed. We sometimes forget that again, when he talks about kingdom of God, it is political talk. It is dangerous talk. And sometimes we um, uh, forget that. In fact, I know we forget that. I had, you know, I don't mind telling you, um, I had a conversation just just recently with, with a with a grown man that turned out to be an exit interview from our church. And one of the things he said to me and as his grievance, he said, you sound political. When you talk, you sound political. Well, the gospel is political. It has to do with how the world is arranged. That's what I'm talking about. See? And so, uh, and, and where, how do you get that? Well, again, remember, creation, covenant, restoration of all creation. This is a, listen, when, when, when Peter said to Jesus, you are the son of God, he understood fully 
that he was bumping up against, I've used the term totalizing, and what I mean by that is the theology of Rome, that is Caesar worship, was a totalizing perspective. Caesar is divine, and he has ordered our world for us. We are the beneficiaries of Caesar's benevolent organization of the world. Never mind the fact that he rules through killing, but anyway, the point is, and that's a part of how propaganda works, we forget so much, but, so, but it's a totalizing thing. So Caesar is God, and that explains how it is and why it is that our world is organized in the way that it's organized. That's the point. The, the theology around Caesar was totalizing. It is everything-ism. And so when Peter says, you are the Son of God, Peter is directly challenging all of that totalizing dynamic of the theology of Rome. You are the everything. You are the everything organizer. You are the, the reorderer of the world. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So these are the two streams coming together. This is the moment. Peter names it, hits the nail right on the head. Jesus says exactly. Flesh and blood hadn't revealed this to you. It's been revealed to you uh, by my father. So continuing the story, Jesus, of course, was seen to be a threat to the, both the Jewish religious establishment of, of the day, and let's just say it frankly, also to the Roman religious establishment of the day. And because of these recognitions, this recognition, two part, single recognition in two parts, they killed him. And of course, after he died and was hanging there lifeless, he was taken down and put into a tomb for burial. That was Friday evening. We call it Good Friday. On Sunday morning, on the third day, some of his followers went to the tomb to finish preparing his body for burial. And this is what has turned the world upside down ever since. There was no body in the tomb. It was empty. And from that day until this day, the followers of Jesus of Nazareth have claimed that he rose from the dead. They claim that they saw him alive with the scars from crucifixion still in his hands. And within days, it started to dawn on these earliest followers of Jesus that, yeah, this is it. This is the time. This is the moment. This is the one. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue and restore all of creation. It goes clear back to those first two themes, creation and covenant. That's where the prophets got their language. That's where the prophets got, that's where the, that's the anchor point for the pr prophets' promises and the use of the term Messiah, which Peter then inserts into the conversation in this moment with Jesus. And so the followers of Jesus realized this is it. This is the moment. This is the promised one, the promised time, the unfolding of God's promised agenda to rescue and restore all of creation. God has, in fact, now sent the world its one true king. Jesus is the world's one true king. And this kingdom that he kept speaking of, what Jesus called the kingdom of God, he was speaking about the new world that God has envisioned all along. And he came 
to bring it about through us now, his spirit-infused followers. And that becomes the construct, the message of the earliest followers of Jesus. So who is Jesus? He's the Messiah, the true son of God. He is the king of the entire world, and he is in charge of everything right now to bring about God's promise to restore all of creation. So listen, what I want to say to you is that this story, this is the story of the Jesus movement. Um, and I realize, I fully realize that the story that I've just told you, this is not the story of popular religion within evangelical circles today. I realize that. And I said this a little bit last week, and I kind of want to end um, this morning where we left off last week. Uh, there were some remarks that I made toward the end of the study last week and some conversation that overflowed into the parking lot afterwards. And so I decided then that I would revisit maybe a bit more thoroughly. Um, and I'll just start from my own point of orientation. Um, this realization of who Jesus is actually restored my faith. There was a point in my life many years ago when I was much younger where I became so disillusioned with what I thought at the time was Christianity that I walked away. I couldn't, I couldn't abide it. It was all about who we're mad at, who we're against. It was all of, I mean, it just, I just couldn't handle it. It was, it was devout people who, who could care less about the earth. Um, it, it was devout people who felt that their righteousness was reinforced by stigmatizing people who they disagreed with, whether it was on a moral basis or whatever. And I, I, just, I just couldn't take it. And I said, well, it, I, I just can't, I can't do Christianity. But then, mercifully, slowly over time, I began to realize and to see that's not Jesus at all. That's just the, that's just the story of Jesus' modern-day franchises in the U.S. <laughs> that's the very best that you can say about that story. And so, and so what I realized for myself is that actually what I walked away from was not Jesus at all. I walked away from toxic franchises that people have put together around Jesus as a symbol, not Jesus the person. And so what I want to say to you, now that's my story. So what I want to say to you and to you, um, there are lots of people who have walked away and are walking away from I'll have to put it in quotes from now on, right, from Christianity. It's a mass, statistically, it's a mass exodus. We don't notice it so much in the Bible Belt, but at least in terms of U.S. trends, it's massive. Um, and the thing that I would say, that I would plead, is that if what you're walking away from is that toxic, twisted thing that's been created 
around Jesus as a symbol. I just want to say, walk away, please. <laughs> but don't walk away from Jesus. This is the story. This is the Jesus story. The story of Jesus is that he is at work now through his spirit-infused people, restoring all of creation to God's good order and God's good design. It is the most compelling story that I know when rid of all the baggage that we've strapped to it. I just want you to know that this Jesus is the full self-revelation of God. This restoring, embracing, welcoming Jesus. This is the full self-revelation of God. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say to the world. The embracer of the unembraceable, the lover of the unlovable, the welcomer of the stigmatized, the restorer of the broken. That's who Jesus is, gratuitously forgiving, without protocol, without ritual, gratuitously forgiving. That's who Jesus is. And so, who is Jesus? Well, that's an enormous question. But... I want to conclude where we began just by saying that Jesus is unyielding hope. This is hope. This is, this is the robust, and as I said before, gritty hope of Christ. By comparison, by comparison, it's a punt. It is a, it is, it is to take the football of hope and punt it to say, well, yeah, Jesus is hope because we believe in Jesus. When we die, we're going to be forgiven and, and go to heaven. No, that's a punt. That's not hope. This is hope. This is hope that, who, that the agenda of God as unfolding in and through Christ and now through his people is to actually restore creation, justice, love, shalom, peace. That's hope. That's who Jesus is. He is for a restored world here and now. And he invites us to pray along with him. Your kingdom come here and now. Your will be done here and now. That is unyielding, gritty, muscular hope for the world here and now. Amen? Everybody tracking? Let's pray.